If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willer Skin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Congrats to the Toronto Argonauts on winning the 2022 Grey Cup, setting us all up for a hammer in hammer Grey Cup in 2023. Here's Scott Can you sound any more excited there, boy? What do you. You know, really, uh. It was close. It was entertaining. And, uh, I can't say anything. What the heck do I care? Uh, and, and, you know, I think there was a lot that uh, felt that way. But entertaining either way. And uh, kudos to uh, the team down the uh, QEW there for, for pulling it out uh, in, in an amazing last couple of minutes. That's for sure. Oh, and guess what? Uh, just for fun, we're going to talk a little later this hour uh, with Dave Foxcroft, President and CEO of Fox 40. Uh, not Ron, Dave, because uh, they were out there uh, doing the officiating, the whistles on the field, and, uh, of course, uh, a Foxcroft at the Grey Cup on the field. So we'll talk about what that experience is like coming up a little bit later. All right, uh, it is uh, Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, and I, I just came back from a holiday. Uh, this was a wedding. Uh, my best friend's, one of my best friend's uh, daughter's uh, daughter got married. Uh, the first one for him. And this was scheduled like three years ago and kept getting postponed, postponed for obvious reasons. Uh, and it happened this past week. So we're in, uh, in the Mayan Riviera in Mexico. And uh, you know, I love Mexico, but every time I come out of there, I just don't feel the same. <laughs> So right now I can really only hear half of you because uh, I have a little bit of an ear infection and uh, I'm a little hoarse. I'm not sure what that's all about. Uh, but really what I'm happy is, uh, is that I'm sitting in a chair as opposed to uh, sitting in a nice soft chair as opposed to, say, a porcelain one. And we'll leave it at that. Uh, but a great time was had by all. Uh, Mexico, I've been a couple of times. Um, any place that's warm this time of the year, and it was funny because as we were taking off, we're going, look what's happening back home. Uh, sorry, Buffalo. And, um, and so on and so forth. But, uh, I found in Mexico, the seas are really rough and a lot of garbage on the, uh, on the, uh, on the seashore and, su- and such, which of course they, they rake away and such. The resorts are absolutely stunning. The food is absolutely amazing. Um, and the climate perhaps hot, but a little moist, really, really damp as opposed to the Caribbean islands, which are a little bit more dry, but uh, great place. Uh, and of course, uh, would go again when the next buddy's uh, daughter gets married down there or wherever we're going. So it's great to be home. Uh, good to be upright and retaining fluids uh, literally today. And uh, we'll leave it at that. Uh, it's uh, the end of November and we're already uh, certainly some parts of the country uh, dealing with big, heavy snow, including those in Buffalo. Uh, and the, the game down there obviously moved to Detroit uh, because, you know, uh, I, I, my son and I were there during the snowball game. Remember that a couple of years ago when we were leaving here and there was absolutely nothing. By the time we got to the uh, stadium, you couldn't see the other side. And they're literally using leaf blowers to along, uh, you know, the sidelines and the hash marks in order to see uh, the yard lines to see where everybody was. So I guess once you get to seven feet, nah, I don't think we can do it. I don't think we can do it with a leaf blower. So <laughs> off to Detroit they went. And another great game for Bills fans. All right, let's, uh, what do we got? The big, the 
the big news, of course, the education strike has uh, somewhat settled. It has to go for ratification between uh, before the members, which from what I understand, from what I hear, I'm going to find out more about this. Uh, that's how it got to the vote anyway, because members were were liking what they were hearing or certainly wanted to hear all of the details about it. But we're going to play you a couple of clips. First one from Education Minister Lecce about the agreement. We just have uh, inked uh, tentative agreement. We need to, of course, respect the uh, process of ratification. What I can confirm to the people of this province is that we brought forth a deal that every party leaves the table with something that they wanted to advance. And the biggest beneficiary of this tentative agreement are our kids and our families who are going to be in school. All right, and uh, let's go to the third one here, Will, where uh, he's thanking those that came together. We are grateful to all the parties for working with the government. We've been very clear in what will guide us every day. Kids deserve to be in class, and I'm proud to confirm they will be. And I think a lot of uh, parents are certainly relieved to hear that, that, um, again, here's something hopefully we can we can rectify, we can move on. We've learned lots during the global pandemic. And, you know, everybody deserves to get what they deserve. And it sounds like this was a pretty good deal. Uh, but not everybody happy about it, including uh, Laura Walton from CUPE. Well, you know, listen, as a mom, I don't like this deal. As a worker, I don't like this deal. As the president of the OSBCU, I understand why this is the deal that's on the table. Um, I think it falls short. I think it's terrible that we live in a world that doesn't see the need to provide services to kids that they need. But we will always put workers first. We will always put our students first. All right. And, you, you know, if, if you look at the details and we'll try to present more of it in the show, uh, it, it does really seem to to prop up. And the government has stepped up to the table and helping the lower edge, uh, lower income workers, rather. And what uh, and we'll try to find this clip. What um, the union uh, head is not excited about is they're not adding any more members. They're not hiring any more employees They're taking care of the ones that they have, but they're not hiring more. Well, that doesn't help the kids that boosts the memberships within the unions and the dues that they pay to support unions. Again, uh, nothing against any of that process, but let's remember if it's about the kids and about those lower income workers that need to be needed to be brought up to a certain level, uh, then let's go on with that. As far as, yeah, now let's hire uh, a whole pile more. I don't think that's what the discussion was. And uh, I think that's where a lot of uh, people draw the line. For those of you that uh, are motorheads and love any type of uh, things that go fast, uh, you may not, uh, and amongst all the football, uh, you may know, obviously, the end of the F1 season uh, ended this past weekend, and a, uh, a champion, which I guess we all saw coming, 15 wins uh, this season for Max Verstappen. To talk more about all of this, Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network. You can hear him every Sunday night right here on CHML. He is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Well, Scooter, nice to be back on with you. So your thoughts on this season, 15 wins. Uh, Many may say, well, that's pretty predictable. But as I've learned about F1, uh, the story is not only with the leader, but everybody else uh, through the pack. So what are your thoughts as you look at this season from a fan perspective? Well, I I thought that, you know, the beginning of the year when they came up with this new car, and that's probably the way to start all of this, when you analyze what's gone on this past season and the, and the runaway that it turned out to be for Max Verstappen and, and the Red Bull team 
won the championship easily. Uh, the championship was already decided in April because Mercedes came out of the gate with a brand new car. Whenever you come into a new season, history, if you look back and charted in Formula One, you came in with a new car, the new arrow. They just they went through the air a whole lot differently. They were sprung differently, and you saw porpoising and bouncing around for people like Mercedes. The fact that, that Lewis came out of the gate and, and for some reason Mercedes really missed it. They gave him a car he couldn't use. He conceded the championship by April. And what happened the season before, let's remember, and you and I talked about it, was that he basically got jobbed by the race director, and they removed some lap cars they weren't supposed to, and basically handed the championship to Verstappen. You would have thought Burke would have come out of the gate, right? Storming, looking for blood and looking for revenge, and they gave him a car that Lewis couldn't use. Now, it got better a little bit during the season, and George Russell, his teammate, won Brazil with it near the end of the um, the schedule, but in credit to Lewis's talents, he was able to at least grab some podiums and and get some points with his car that he really couldn't use. So, you know, looking at that, I didn't expect it to be that much of a runaway. I expected Mercedes to really be strong. They didn't turn out to be. I really expected Ferrari with Charles Leclerc and, and Carlos Sainz to really get up there and challenge the Red Bull guys as well. But, you know, they had a fast car, but, you know, there was some confusion on the wall in between the race directors and what they wanted to do and what the drivers wanted to do. They, they There were some driver errors as well and some pretty, uh, pretty uh, significant predicaments and things that they got themselves in. So it basically was a runaway for Max Verstappen and Red Bull and the other teams that you expected to jump up and challenge Scooter never actually did. And, and to my mind, that was kind of a disappointment. So what happens next for Lewis Hamilton and uh, and Mercedes? Uh, Lewis, and I mean, as you said, put on the great fight, but you really felt like his spirit was broken this season. Well, it, yeah, because you know he, he was not used to having a piece of machinery that he really couldn't use. I don't know whether I would go as far as to say his spirit is broken, because he really made it a point to say, yeah, the car isn't that great, but I'm not going to give up. There's lots of people. Of course, the the European media went completely crazy and said, oh, he's probably going to quit Formula One. No, he's not. I mean, he still has that championship to win his eighth that'll break the record that he's tied with with Michael Schumacher and become the greatest of all time in terms of a number of championships in a career. He still has the fire to do that. However... If they come out of the gate again in 2023 next spring and the car is still garbage, I don't know, maybe that's when his spirit gets broken because hmm. it's, it certainly is frustrating. It's like, it's like giving a hockey player inferior equipment to try and get something done, and, and that's not like Mercedes, and that certainly is how they missed the, how they missed the whole thing this year. But I, I, thought, I don't know whether the desire to get that eighth championship is gone. I think he, he's more or less said he's coming back, and he will. I just pray they can give him a race car he can use. You wonder how he gets, and I don't want to, you know, relive last year where obviously yeah. due to officiating, Lewis yep. uh, was behind Verstappen and there's cars in between him and he lost the race. It should have yeah. been his championship. Uh, I think a lot of people believe that. Uh, yep, uh, but you have to wonder, how do you put that behind you and you and to. just try to motor on? And especially, as you said, with inferior equipment, man, you just got to think there's, you know, but perhaps the drive for the eight will keep him going. Well, yeah, and, and I think, you know, he he's not a quitter, never has been since the time he started, you know, racing carts and up through Good the point. junior formula. Yeah, he, he's never he's never been a quitter, and this is not the first time he's run into adversity. You know, it looks like it, it, things have gone pretty much his way the last long while, and they really have, and that's just a, a tad amount, I think, to and a testament, I should say, to his talent. And the fact of the matter is he could give up, but he's not going to, and as long as he is physically able to do this and they can give him the equipment that he needs to get there, I 
think that they're fully capable next year of getting up and challenging Red Bull and challenging Max Verstappen and grab that eighth championship. So it just depends on the equipment that they give him. I mean, it's a combination of driver talent and, and the machinery that they give him is the difference between, you know, finishing on the podium and finishing well down into the pack. And a lot of teams are suffering with that as well. So that's that's basically where where he's where he's pointed. He had to put all of that behind him. And, you know, he, he if you remember right after it happened, he went quiet for almost yeah. a good two months. Right? No social media contact, nothing. But, you know, look at it this way. Just before they did the final race in Abu Dhabi, and you probably saw the photos and some of the video, is that Lewis Hamilton took the rest of the grid, all 19 other drivers, out for dinner. You know? Mm -hmm. And and he paid the tab. I don't think it was driven up because of alcohol, because I don't think a lot of those guys drink. It doesn't matter. That would have been a pretty hefty darn restaurant, Bill. But that's the camaraderie, camaraderie and the respect, Scooter, that they have for one another in the World Driving Championship. I mean, you know, they're put on pedestals. They have all these PR people around them and following them around and helping them get in and out of the car and all this kind of stuff and working with their equipment. But they're just regular guys like you and me. And I've talked to a number of them. Once you just get them onto a situation, you know, put a steak in front of them and a, and a glass of soda water, they're happy as <laughs> And they're just regular guys. Give them a plate of chicken wings. Ah, they may be too fatty but you know what they're 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 good racers and they're all terrific Verstappen was unbelievable this year because of the machinery and because he's a great driver too but Lewis isn't going to give up and if they give him the car that I hope they give him next year we're going to see a terrific fight between Verstappen and Lewis. all right only got a couple of seconds left talk about F1 and women in racing if you can just what's going on it's a great idea to get women into the stream to try and get them some track time and work with some professional teams in, in the junior formulae. But as I, I told Rick Zamperin this morning, it's a good first step, Scott, unless unless they can find a way to get these ladies, after the, all this lap time and all this experience, up to race toe-to-toe with the guys. It's really going to stunt their development. They have to make sure that they give them the competition side-by-side. Just racing other women isn't going to do much for their development. It'll help, mm. but they need to get against the guys and see if they can compete with them fair and square, you know, eye-to-eye and toe-to-toe like they do in drag racing because it doesn't happen anywhere else but there, and they need to make sure that it is. Uh, this is the good first step. There needs to be a strong plan B to get them against the guys as soon as they possibly can. Great point. Eric Thomas with us, uh, Raceline Radio Network, Sunday nights right here on CHML. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Always have fun, Scott. Let's do some more whenever we can. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, I'm sure you saw the Grey Cup. Uh, very entertaining game. Very close game. Just as, you know, the last few Grey Cups have been pretty, pretty exciting. And uh, obviously yesterday is no different. Uh, the only thing that would have made it better is if the Cats, of course, were in it. But uh, Dave Foxcroft just wrapped up this, his uh, 21st season as a CFL official and, uh, of course, was the head official at uh, for the uh, sixth time last or yesterday and more recently so before that in 2017 let's get his take on uh, the game from his perspective dave foxcroft with us president and coo of fox international incorporated and cfl referee is with us now dave thanks for the time i hope you're well hey scott thanks for having me on and uh yeah as a referee i know you're talking to me and about me after the game and uh I'm glad this is a friendly conversation because I feel that a lot of times people are talking about the referees after games, but I think our crew did a really good job, and uh, I'm not hearing the crew mentioned very much in the media. 
Yeah, so, uh, I, you, I, as long as you don't have Rick talking you, uh, talking about you guys in the fifth quarter, you're pretty safe. I think uh, you're safe, right. People aren't but, phoning in talking about us, right? Exactly. So uh, here you are a day later. I, I mean, I'm sure there's just a buzz of adrenaline going on, just like for the athletes, for the referees. What is it like the day after uh, as you look back and process yesterday's game? What, what well, stands out? God, it's kind of. I still feel like I'm in yesterday. I just, I, I just got off the field. I, I got back to my hotel. I was only there for a couple hours, and I had to get up and get an early morning flight. So, so it really is still Sunday to me. So, uh, I still have that adrenaline going, and uh, and we're excited about it. And hey, I'm excited for Hamilton today as well because today in Hamilton is the first day of us hosting the Grey Cup. Next year, 2023, the 110th Grey Cup coming to Hamilton. So I'm pretty think, excited about that. I have that uh, to get ready for. Wow. So or will, is it safe to say you'll be there, or do you know that now? No, we don't, we don't actually find out uh, that we're actually refing the game until after the Eastern and Western finals. So we only have six days' notice that when we're told that you will be the referee on the Grey Cup game. So... Um, it's not like we get our we get our assignment six weeks in advance during the season. We only get it six days in advance, so it's a lot of scrambling and preparing and 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 getting the crew ready and assembling that crew and getting it ready in a very short time. So, how was this one different for you than previous per se? Um, it, previous ones, you know, it's it, well, it's like any other game. I'm going to say that. And it may be kind of cliche that it's like any other game, because any other game, I do my prep. I, I look at film on both teams. I gather the tendencies. I always find a game. Uh, sometimes it's the previous year where the two teams have played each other. Um, this game's a little different because I get more help. Uh, Marshall Ferguson, who's also with the league, and nobody can have the analytics of a of a game like Marshall and break down a football game like Marshall. And he really provided me some tendencies that I was able to share with the crew. Uh, Al Bradbury, who just retired uh, from being a CFL on-field official this year, put a lot of film together. Al Bradbury, locally from Burlington, now lives in Winnipeg, but we actually went to high school together in in Burlington, and uh, he Hmm. actually was in my ear the whole game. He was the video, or the the replay official. Another local official, Tom Velazzi, was, uh, was the video official. And, of course, I had Dave Gatz and Jason Maggio on the crew. So the Hamilton-Burlington area was really well re- represented out there in the officiating team. So, Do you get the same buzz on the field that the athletes do? Uh, I remember one time being fortunate enough uh, at, at the old Ivor Wind to go out and, and be a part of the circle for the coin toss. And you can just feel the energy out there, and the players are popping up and down. Do you feel the same thing as a referee? And, and obviously, you have to balance that. It's funny, Scott, the... The, going into this game, I was most nervous for the coin toss. I can referee a game, and I've done <laughs> that a lot. And I, uh, It was really weird. Like, we have a non-traditional coin. They just sort of showed me a coin and handed it yeah. to me and said, here you go. And I kind of looked at it. You know, all season we've been going, you know, with what heads and what tails is. I had to make up on the fly when they handed me this coin that, that the 109th Grey Cup logo was going to be heads, and then I saw there was a trophy on the other side, the Grey Cup trophy. I figured trophy, T, tails, let's make this tails. <laughs> so I just kind of made that up at the last minute, and, of course, Toronto had the choice, and uh, uh, I don't know where it came from. And I asked Muambo, the, 
the the choice he said tails and i said yeah okay you want the trophy so he kind of said we want the trophy so and then uh, of course what an honor meeting the national chief assembly of first nations roseanne archibald i i've met the governor general several joint chiefs of staff doing these coin tosses admirals um, olympians and paralympians but we had the national chief roseanne archibald she was prepared what a coin toss she did She's been doing to, and Brian Krupolo is on my my crew, and the the league allowed him. He's indigenous, and they allowed him to wear his colors over his mm. referee uniform. And I asked Brian to come out. It wasn't scheduled. We went off script, and at the last minute, it said, "Brian, come out, meet the national chief assembly of First Nations, stand beside me for the coin toss." And he came out, and they they had a nice conversation, which I didn't understand, but I wish I did. And uh, it was just really, it it was, but like I say, that's what I was most nervous for, the coin toss. What about the last two minutes? Uh, The last two minutes of that game were incredible. Yeah, once you you get into the game, the game just, the game moves. And uh, it kind of slows down for you, and you see everything happening. These, These players are fast, and they're athletic. But over the years, you have to learn to see it in slow motion. And, you know, we had a couple penalties near the end of the game, and uh, we, we had to call them. And, uh, you know, Al Bradbury was in my ear on the face mask call saying, yep, that's a correct mm-hmm. call, because that's automatically reviewable. It's a, uh, it's a face mask on the quarterback behind the line of scrimmage. So, you know, if that wasn't there, that would have got picked up. But uh, that penalty was there, and, uh, you know, it was a local – Laurier boy that made that, but then he came yeah. through at the end and made the block on the uh, on the field yeah. goal too. So, so that was great to see. Really, it was fun. A lot of is fun. it harder to call a close game or one not so close, or is that irrelevant? Well, a close game, the players are going to play right, and uh, sometimes when the game's out of control, it can get sloppy, and you never know. You never know what a player's going to do. Right, and uh, you know, generally in a Grey Cup game. Players like to keep their emotions in check, and we don't have a lot of penalties and everything. But uh, I actually was really proud of my crew that we stepped up because there was a player that verbally abused an official, and he was penalized. And uh, in the national championship Great Cup game, because, you know, we have a really real problem and what's hurting sports is verbal abuse of officials and a lot of physical abuse of officials as well. And it's hard to recruit and retain retain officials because of that. You know, it used to be, they used to say to us, you know, have thick skin. You know, well, we shouldn't have to have thick yeah. skin. You know, my early days I was always taught, oh, don't take it personal. They're just yelling at the uniform. Well, that's not right either. You know, so, so it was good. I hope people see that, that. Uh, you know, you can't get away with it in a Grey Cup championship game and you can't get away with it at, at any level. Amateur, you're out there watching your, your sons or daughters playing hockey, basketball, volleyball, whatever, you know, respect the referees. So I was really proud of my crew to step up and, and not take that, you know, so that was good. Dave Foxcroft with us, head referee, yesterday's Grey Cup, and, of course, uh, Fox 40 International. Uh, I could ask questions for an hour about this. Dave, we'll have you on again. Thanks so much That'd for the great. time, and say hi to your dad. Be well. I'll do that. Thanks, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You certainly saw on social media, uh, even made the newscast, uh, the 
flash of light that went across uh, southern Ontario uh, Saturday morning, wee hours. Uh, there was actually one shot of the CN Tower, and it looked like, uh, man, it was only inches away. I'm sure it was much farther than that. But if you uh, did see it and uh, were up at, I guess, about 3 a.m. or saw it through security uh, footage and such, uh, it was a meteor. And to explain more about what this is about and, and how close was it, does it matter? Dr. Elena Hyde with us, Director Alan Carswell Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University, and is with us now. Elena, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. I'm, I'm doing great. It's been just really interesting up in space all week. And uh, uh, this asteroid, I should say, um, is a really fa- fantastic event. So what happened and was what was this related to? So this was actually something we knew was going to happen, which is one of the really cool things about it. Um, this is only the sixth time ever we've actually gotten a alert from global asteroid warning systems before something hit uh, the planet. Wow. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't just, so you say asteroid, people start thinking about the dinosaurs, uh, but this was only about one meter long, but it was still an asteroid, uh, just a very small one. And in fact, this is the smallest asteroid that has ever been found um, to hit Earth before it actually hit. So it was found when it was still in space. The Minor Planet Center uh, recorded it, and I believe the first first uh, glimpse came from an astronomer in Arizona. And, um, yeah, it, it was actually found that it would go over Lake Ontario, and sure enough, it came in and went, as many people noticed, by the CN Tower. It made a heck of a light show, created a bit of a boom um, just a great show all around, but it was only about a meter long, and we think it probably mostly landed in Lake Ontario. <laughs> so, really? Uh, now, will you ever find that out? Well, it's, uh, we can trace its path and, and determine that it probably did go mostly into the lake, but as it came in, a lot of people noticed those bright flashes. We could actually have some chunks of what's now called a meteorite, because once it hits Earth, it goes from meteor to meteorite. Okay. Um, and uh, there might be some chunks, and they've actually mapped out the most likely place in Canada. If you are really keen, there is a possibility, not, not 100%, but a possibility that some chunks of meteorite could have made landfall just east of Hamilton in Grimsby or McNabb. So if you're really keen... That's where to look. Earlier on, you were talking about a warning device that lets you knew this was coming long before it got here. This was the first time, I think you said. Why now? Why did this happen? Yes, yeah, so actually, this was the sixth time uh, that we have managed to predict an impact. Right. And it's happened because we, as a, a species, I suppose, and especially the astronomer members of us, um, have been working on this for a long time. We have wanted asteroid warning systems because if you're going to get hit by a chunk of rock you would kind of like to know about it and you would like Mm. to be able to warn people if it's going to be a big rock hitting a for example more populous area but ever since we've been watching the skies 
Um, it's always been very difficult because, of course, asteroids and meteors, um, they're not very bright out in space, so they're hard to see. And this, as I say, this was actually the smallest, uh, only, only about one meter long, um, that's ever been detected. And last time a meteor was detected pre-impact was actually also this year, back in March, uh, ESA, the European Space Agency, detected an object um, uh, in Hungary, which actually struck Earth uh, somewhere in Greenland. Um, so we're getting better and better at this, which is really, really cool, because this means that, of course, um, we have a good chance of knowing in advance if something actually bigger does, does show up. It seems that you said this one was a meter. Even if that made ground and hit something, wouldn't that do a bit of damage too? Yeah, so anything that can create a crater uh, can, can damage things. And there have been cases of people getting uh, damage to their roofs. Uh, there was famously a case, of, I think, about, gosh, almost 100 years ago where some, a meteor went through someone's roof and uh, hit their bed. Yeah. And they, they were fine. But it, it can damage things. And, of course, the larger the rock is, the more damage it can do. Fortunately, um, the, the solar system is of an age where the larger asteroid impacts are very, very rare. Um, so this is, uh, you know, we're looking mostly for, for small uh, fragments or small asteroids um, coming in to land on Earth. And it's just really wonderful that this is, this is for only the sixth time uh, uh, we are actually able to predict it before it hit, and it put on such a great show for everyone. Dr. Elena Hyde with us, Director Alan Carswell, Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, explaining that flash in the sky and looking up for us to tell us when we're in harm's way. Uh, Elena, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Absolutely, be well. And as they say, keep saying, uh, don't forget to look up at you because you just never know what you'll find. And that was obvious of that. We've been talking about this for a while, but I'm not sure why this hasn't got... Uh, uh, more coverage than it has earlier on in this uh, situation and uh, why exactly we do have the shortage that we do. We certainly know that there's a, an increase in respiratory uh, viruses and the flu and such as a result of where we have, you know, coming out of this global pandemic. And we all know um, it, it's been a, a pretty strong season for all of that. Um, but again, a lot of this was anticipated and there, the good news is, is that, uh, there are hopefully some solutions on the way and more medicine on the way. To talk more about all of this, Jen Belcher is with us, Vice President, Strategic Initiatives and Member uh, Relations with Ontario's Pharmacy, uh, with Ontario Pharmacists Association, and with us now. Jen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for having me. So, Jen, why is there a shortage? Why do we not have enough? And we know there's obviously we're sicker this fall than we have been in the past, but why the shortage? Yeah, so this shortage specifically on the children's pain medication um, has been driven by much higher than normal demand. Uh, in the late summer, early fall, we saw demand spike to you know four times or greater previous all-time high utilization of these products. And the manufacturers have really been only able to um, really double their output. And so shortages that we saw starting in April continuing throughout the summer have just gotten worse and worse as more and more people are looking for these products and um, we just haven't been able to keep up with the demand with our domestic production. Uh, so it is domestic production. Do we need to incre increase our domestic production? Yeah, what I would say is um, definitely in these surge times, um, 
you know, the fact that manufacturers were only able to double what they were outputting, even in the face of starting to see this data come in um, as to, you know, higher than that demand uh, is challenging, but it is limited by a lot of complex factors, such as the available of ingredients, you know, being able to import additional raw ingredients like the active drug itself, um, and a lot, of, a lot of other complex factors that go into it. But definitely, you know, that transparent communication around where they are with supply and whether or not they believe they'll be able to meet the supply um, and demand is, is really important moving forward. But uh, that's sort of what led us to this point where we've now needed to import a foreign supply to sort of, you know, um, fill, fill the shelves temporarily to allow some of that domestic manufacturing to catch up. Do we normally manufacture most of our own medication like this, or is it is some brought in? What is the ratio? Do we know? Um, I don't have the exact ratios. Some products are imported and some are produced domestically. Um, it's a blend across both prescription products that are kept behind the counter, dispensed only by pharmacies, as well as these consumer-based products that have um, you know some of those important labeling and safety requirements in bilingual languages and so forth. So whether they're produced domestically or produced specifically by a foreign entity for the Canadian market, um, you know, we have certain amounts that are typically produced for us um, on or off Canadian soil. And that inability to really ramp up to meet the demand is what has led us to be in this situation right now. Uh, is this a Canadian problem? Are other countries suffering with this? So from what we know, um, this much higher surge in demand is somewhat uniquely Canadian. Other countries haven't seen quite as much of an increase in the demand for the products, despite seeing high levels of circulating viral illnesses, reasons to use these products to treat symptoms. Um, that may, you know, be be brought um, to be by the fact that we had a lot of coverage in the late fall um, around the potential for needing a prescription, which was clarified that that's not in fact the case. People may have gone out and sort of done a bit of the panic buying, um, stocked up, placed additional strain on that supply. But ultimately, there may also be a more robust supply in the marketplace in some of these other jurisdictions where they haven't had quite as an extensive a shortage. But we have heard anecdotally, and I think through that Health Canada press conference, but other nations, such as the United States, are still feeling some tightness to their supply, not to the extent that we have here in Canada. Um, so is this a lack of product or too much sickness or both? Because, again, I, I really haven't found much on this in other countries. As a matter of fact, heard uh, stories of people from the U.S. sending their friends medication up from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so really, like this has become more of a Canadian-specific issue with um, our increased demand over other nations as well as a more constrained supply. So for us, it's been a perfect storm on these products, but some of the other shortages, such as these um, children's antibiotics that we've spoken about, um, are more international issues as well, too, where it was actually the United States and Australia that sounded the bell on the shortage of children's amoxicillin first, and then we saw our supply um, fall short within a short period of time. Could we have seen this coming? Right, and well, didn't we? I think we did, didn't we? Yeah, we've we've been talking about this one since late April. I mean, definitely that the the situation has escalated since that point. Um, but this is also not something that is new to pharmacy. We've been managing these drug shortages on the back end, um, sort of in the background behind the counter for years, if not decades, and they've gotten much worse over the last 
really five years. Um, this is just the first time this has been so visible to the public with shelves being empty and it being really quite an extensive shortage in a consumer product that a lot of people rely on. I feel like we're waiting for COVID-19 vaccine again. <laughs> yes, um, I know that some pharmacies are feeling that similar level of joy and relief seeing uh, the the supply start to come in. But uh, definitely some of these shortages of products have really called into light that need to make sure that we have um, products that are destined for use in Canadians and that that supply chain is really healthy and, and supported. So how do we fix this, Jen? I think, you know, one of the things that we need to ensure is that when we have leadership meeting on these sorts of issues, that we include all stakeholders that touch this problem. So, um, you know, we're calling for um, pharmacy providers to be involved in these conversations um, to ensure that we have transparent and proactive communication about molecules that are in jeopardy um, and, you know, to ensure that we're, we're nimble and able to respond um, and do things like import from other countries when that's possible but also examine some of the strategies that we've put into place to make our medications more affordable here in Canada, um, which do have some economic and, and market impact into how desirable Canada is as a marketplace to export drugs to or to manufacture in. So mm. um, definitely a balancing of those policies, especially as we are in the process of negotiating a new generic pricing agreement. We want to ensure that Canada is viewed as a desirable place um, to innovate and to um, sell their products. To it sounds also- a lot like waiting for a vaccine, Jen. It sounds like the same similar <laughs> problem. We'll continue this discussion. Jen Belcher with us, Vice President of Strategic Initiatives and Member Relations Ontario Pharmacists Association. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, I found this fascinating because there was chatter, all kinds of chatter about this uh, a while ago during the election campaign. And nothing has been really said. Then uh, a, a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago, there was more information coming out uh, from our intelligence services that were saying there is definitely looks like there's been some influence, uh, financial influence from the Chinese Communist Party on election of MPs here in Canada. And it was odd that uh, everybody seemed to know about it, except the prime minister. He said uh, he wasn't hadn't been briefed on any of this yet was holding court with uh, President Xi of China and telling us how he had brought it up and and mentioned it. So uh, it, it's very bizarre what's happening. We need clarification. Let's bring in Gordon Holden. Uh, Gordon Holden is Director Emeritus of the China Institute and Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, and with us now. Gordon, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. It's a pleasure as always, Scott. Thank you. So what's happening here, Gordon? Um, Obviously, it looks like there's severe influence by the Chinese Communist Party in Canadian elections. It's a huge story, and it's significant, in my view, in several ways. Number one, the allegations, if accurate, are deeply disturbing. Um, Playing around with or tampering with or damaging, potentially, our democratic institutions, particularly in this case, would appear provincial legislature and the the House of Commons. But it's also interesting in the sense that CSIS is a pretty tight drum. And from my long experience, it's very unusual to have, yes, you have former CSIS senior officials speaking after their employment's finished, 
but of course not providing any details on what they did, just their assessment. But in this case, it would appear that the media was privy to really detailed briefs that go in some detail about a whole series of specific allegations. The CSIS is a powerful institution with a lot of power in terms of ability to surveil, not just foreigners, but Canadians in certain circumstances. So it's, to me, to me, it's unprecedented to have this degree of leaking of information. And then, of course, the two things combined, the seriousness of allegations and the leaks, then brings up the questions as why was something not done or what has been done or how is the government going to deal with this? So I think it's, a, it's an enigma within it wrapped in a secret. Uh, the Prime Minister said he didn't know anything about it. He wasn't briefed on it, yet apparently had some sort of encounter with uh, Chinese President Xi about it. So uh, how do you square that? Well, it's, it's possible, um, but it would, you, know, it would take, you have to assume certain things. I noticed what the Prime Minister said subsequently, was spoke to specific details, that he hadn't been briefed on the identities of MPs involved or the individuals involved. That's possible. Um, allegations of that severity one would normally think, would have gone to the PMO, to the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor, that sort of thing. Often, intelligence, from my experience, for very senior people, including Ministers, Prime Ministers, would be very general. wouldn't necessarily have all the, the gory details. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of time spent probably on who knew what, when, etc. But personally, the allegations were very serious. It's not the first time these things have happened. No. The first time that I'm aware of, we've had the degree of detail that's been, my impression is that the reporter either saw the briefs or was given very highly specific detailed information about them before writing the initial storage, and it came from Global News. So there's a, um, it's, it's a very big deal, and it's got multiple dimensions, the allegations themselves, and how did this information ever get into the hands of the um, of the media. Those are both big aspects to the same story. Do we have any idea how many candidates the Chinese Communist Party tried to meddle in? Well, if I recall, it sounded like something like a, a 11 or 12, almost a, a dozen or a baker's dozen, a considerable number. Uh, I guess that sort of specificity, again, tells me that someone's had very detailed access to the intelligence briefs, which would not be normal, and that's normally what, not what's planned. But if that's true, that's a big number. And uh, there'll be, of course, a lot of curiosity. And, of course, people in Ottawa, some um, conservative party, I believe, is in saying, well, who are these people? And the government so far has declined to say who they are. But they're not saying, when I can see, that this didn't happen. And, again, as you pointed out, if they've complained to President Xi, um, at some point, the Prime Minister now has been has been briefed or he wouldn't have raised this, although he might have been briefed in general terms about interference and not about the individual names. We need to know a lot more. Um, but on the other hand, these are things that normally the details are not even within public discussion. They're kept very tightly held. So do we know um, what parties they would be supporting? Would they be supporting liberals or conservatives? Well, both are possible. Um, both are possible. I, mean, I don't in the in the intelligence documents that will be there because they would. And again, it's very sensitive stuff. But they would know the names, and if they've got the numbers and the individuals, they would have the names as well. Um, so um, we will see. I mean, there's two major parties and another couple of other smaller parties. Um, we don't really know. Generally, 
um, foreign intelligence agencies are interested in influencing policy when they're looking for points of weakness or trying to influence behaviors. They'll they'll look to whoever that could be. Could be could be liberals. Could be conservatives. Could be NDP. Look, um, I, I really have. Of course, I have no idea, but the intelligence agencies will know, and, and some people in government will know those names. It seems it seems that the feds have really changed their tune on the Chinese Communist Party in the last few weeks or so. Why is that? Is that because they're being exposed? It's be, this sort of stuff is being exposed, or is there new information that we didn't know before? Well, I think there's definitely new information that we didn't know before. That is the the public. Right. Um, this kind of serious allegation, from my experience, is not new. It's been around for years. But and there has been a deterioration in the relationship. I had thought with the release of the two Michaels, the end of the Meng Wanzhou saga, there might be a bit of a rebound. But these sorts of very serious allegations point exactly in the opposite direction. And that, and that bad experience in Bali. Um, yes, these things are front and center. And this story, because of seriousness and because so much information has been released by someone, leaked by perhaps by thesis itself, or perhaps like someone else in government, that would mean we're not looking at an early resolution. I think it's going to just fester there for quite a while as people try and get out more details. But normally, you would not, the public would not know the details. A government might say, in a, in a very bland document, that they have concerns about political interference by certain countries. Uh, you might get a name of a country, you might not. But this kind of detail is, is exceptionally unusual for that to be in the public domain. Uh, Gordon Holden with us, Director Emeritus, China Institute, Professor of Political Science with the University of Alberta. Gordon, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. Take care. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, the confines of the CSIS Act, the same words based on, on legal interpretation, jurisprudence, federal court rulings, and so on, there was a very clear understanding of what those words meant in the confines of the CSIS Act. And what I, uh, I was reassured by is that there was, you know, in the context of the Emergencies Act, there was to be a separate interpretation based on the confines of that, that act. All right. So uh, that's the director of CSIS, Vignon, and said earlier today at the Emergencies Act inquiry, and it's going to get really good this week because all the heavy hitters are coming out, uh, that he recommended that the Prime Minister use the Emergencies Act, even though the definition and the criteria in order to meet the Emergencies Act uh, had not been met, but needed to clean up the mess, which I think was something we talked about just a couple of weeks ago with Phil Gursky, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former CSIS analyst and is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. How are you this evening? I have not. I can't wait to talk to you about this <laughs> and what your thoughts were today, because we've had this conversation. And oh, again, this wasn't brought you. in. For, <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't brought in for national security. It was brought in to clean up the mess. What are your thoughts of the testimony today? Oh, Scott, where do we begin? You know, you've got people saying that the the, the the determination of a threat to national security is contained within the CSIS Act, where I worked for 15 years under Section Two. Then we ask people, well, the Emergency Act says something different. 
if you read the Emergency Act, it says the definition of a threat to national security is the same as the Defense Act, Section 2. So you can't say we've got multiple interpretations of the Act. Otherwise, uh, who, who decides who's who in the zoo here? You've got legislative uh, tools like the Seas Act. You've got a professional organization that does national security. They're telling you there's no threat to national security. And someone says, well, we don't believe your, your definition. We're going to use a different definition. I mean, who's running this show, Scott? It's, it's, it's ridiculous. So your thoughts on uh, the director's testimony today, saying that it didn't meet the threshold but was needed. And again, I'm adding on to clean up the mess after three weeks yeah. of nothing. Uh, and we talked about that. And you said to me, that sounds fine and dandy, Scott, but that is not enough to meet the threshold of calling the EA. Well, and it's not. And again, I mean, I mean, I'm not going to criticize my former director, Mr. Vigneault, for what he said into the, to the inquiry, but simply state again that he said, yeah, as a director of CSIS, my legislation says X, Y, or Z when it comes to threats to national security, but the Emergency Act says something different. Well, no, it says the same thing. I've just read the Emergencies Act, and it says the, the, the definition of a threat is determined by the CSIS Act. So there, there's, no, there's no disparity here. It's either a threat or it's not, based, based on what CSIS says. So I don't know why he would have said that. I mean... You know, what, again, was it a, you call it a clean-up situation, which I think is a really good analogy to use here, but it certainly doesn't meet the threshold of national security based on either the CSIS Act or the Emergencies Act. So why Mr. Vigneault decided to say that, I, frankly, Scott, I, I haven't the merest idea as to why he said that today. Do you think if he did, and as he did say that, he should have clarified it more by saying, for example, it didn't meet the threshold of a uh, national security threat, but it, it, you know, we certainly needed to take over and get this done. I mean, would it have better, been better be said that? Because obviously the, the Ottawa police chief resigned the next day. But it's not his job. I mean, yeah. his job as director of CSIS is to, is to run an organization that does investigations that are threats to national security as, as defined in Section 2 of the CSIS Act. It's not his job to tell the prime minister how to remove a blockade from downtown Ottawa or the Ambassador Bridge or Coots or Emerson or whatever kind of thing. That's beyond his remit. If he's asked for his, his advice, his advice should be limited to, this is what the CSIS Act allows me to do. This is our assessment based on the intelligence that we have gathered, and, and we've looked at it. We've corroborated it to multiple sources. This is what I can offer the government. That's the job of CSIS to advise, saying that this, this, this thing, which doesn't bear any resemblance to the, any, any, any reference to the CSIS Act, strikes me as kind of beyond the mandate. And, and you know, for an organization that people are scared of at the best of times in terms of what it can and cannot do, do you want the, the CSIS director to be going to areas that really aren't part of what the CSIS is supposed to do in the first place? I know I don't. So how do you think the public's going to interpret what he said today? They're going to be confused. Uh, and again, I mean, David Vigneault is a personal friend of mine. Again, I don't, I don't want to you know, criticize him on, on, on radio, but they're going to be confused because they're getting mixed messages. Um, you're getting a, 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 a security professional saying, my organization does not feel this constitutes a threat to national security, and therefore, under the way the legislation reads, does not warrant the Invocation of Emergency Act. And then he says, oh, by the way, there's different interpretations, and I can, I can see it. So it's, it's mixed messages at a minimum, Scott, and I think people are going to say, um, like, who's running the show here, and, and who, who makes these decisions based on what? And, you know, when you work in national security, um, again, there's already a lot of doubt and, and uncertainty and suspicion about what these agencies do. And when they're told that no, there's no consistency, that's never a good day for any Canadian, I don't think. Uh, are you sensing political interference here? Um, I'm a little boy. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I really don't know. I sincerely hope not. It wouldn't be the first time that a government has uh, engaged in political interference with, with law enforcement or security agencies. You think back to the systemic racism comments that um, Commissioner Lucky was was forced to make with the RCMP a little while back. 
when she said on day one there's no systemic racism, and day two there is, I'm sure she got mm. a phone call or an email saying you'll say this. I, so I don't know, Scott. I, I guess as you know, as a Canadian who believes in the rule of law and democracy and the independence mm. of security and law enforcement, I sincerely hope this isn't a case of political interference. But I have nothing to suggest that. What about, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, used differently in a new world has to be expanded, the definition of? Um, sure. But then that's why you amend legislation, right? You don't decide yeah. us on the spur of the moment unless something is so dire. And let's face it, as, as, as uncomfortable and as disrupting as what was happening in Ottawa was, or, or Coots, or, or the Ambassador Bridge, or whatever, it wasn't so dire as to make up definitions on the spot. And yes, things do change. I mean, the CSIS Act, you know, probably needs some kind of revision. And before CSIS came as an organization, there were different definitions of national security. We didn't even have terrorism, Scott, as an offense in Canada until mm. 2001. We had terrorism much before that. So you're constantly revising legislation, but that's the point. You revise it through, through Parliament. You don't make up stuff on the, on the fly and then apply it, you know, based on, the, on something that's not actually part of a, an act of Parliament. Is this investigation over when you think about it? You mean the inquiry? Um, yeah. No. <laughs> I don't know what language we're going to You know, like, we, we do inquiries like six times a week, I think, in this country, Scott. So who knows what's, what's going to come out? There'll be recommendations that are ignored. Mm. Uh, some will be obeyed or maybe are taken a, a closer look at. But I'm not thinking anything major is going to change. The government's going to, you know, um, go to its dying day saying this was justified, and people will say it wasn't justified. So where that leaves us, probably status quo ante, I would, I would assume. Phil Gursky, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow with the University of Ottawa Security Program, former CSIS analyst. Phil, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The finale of the Emergencies Act acquiring uh, inquiry is approaching. Uh, a lot of heavy hitters coming in this week, ministers, and ending off with the Prime Minister at the end of the week. But surprising testimony today from uh, the director of CSIS, who said that, uh, and this was re- repeated earlier on in the uh, in the testimony, that the Emergencies Act or the calling of it didn't reach the threat of national security, which is the criteria needed to call the act, however, was needed to basically clean up the mess. Those are my words, not his. Um, And that being said, it appears, as I've talked about in the past, this was more of a situation to fix what had happened after three weeks, as opposed, uh, or the lack of action after three weeks uh, to clean this up, as opposed to an actual threat of national uh, national security. Let's bring in Duff Conacher, Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch and with us now. Duff, thanks for your time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, hope you are as well. So your thoughts, Duff, on what the uh, CSIS director said today, saying didn't reach the level of national security threat but was needed. Yes, well, there's the technical language of the Emergencies Act and whether that standard of uh, was met. Uh, and then there is the political argument and those are separate and the inquiry commissioner is making a decision based on what the act says which is uh that it has to threaten the government's uh, sovereignty security territorial integrity of canada or and seriously endangers the lives health or safety of canadians uh, and exceeds the, the capacity of any police authority to deal with it and then the argument from the government, which will be uh, and has been consistently uh, that it was needed because police forces were not using their authority. Um, but, 
in order to use call the Emergencies Act, it has to be a, a endangerment to the lives, health, or safety of Canadians of such a proportion or nature to exceed the capacity of a police authority of a province to deal with it. And it wasn't that. Uh, the national security one is separate. That's not about whether the police are able to deal with it or not. That's only in the case of endangerment to lives, health, or safety of Canadians. But the government will continue to say um, it was needed, and that's their political argument. I think they'll lose in the end, uh, but they'll still have that cover for those who want to believe them that it was needed to, to get rid of the convoy protest blockade in Ottawa. Uh, do you think it's accurate to say this uh, allowed some sort of central leadership? Uh, again, not a threat to national security. That's been said several times. However, it started. There was no plan B. Uh, nobody was really uh, the Ottawa police chief not accepting intelligence from RCMP or OPP on any of this. And again, uh, just thought it would be out of town uh, in a couple of days from from then. And then, of course, it seemed to be passing the buck as this thing got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then this was needed for some sort of central leadership to clean this mess up because it seemed the Ottawa police chief couldn't do that. And he resigned the day after it was called. Yeah, the difficulty with making that argument now is uh, the testimony of RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky uh, last week. Um, it's kind of stunning that she's still in her job because what's come <laughs> out is one, when she was in touch with the OP, uh, Ontario police chief, um, uh, and she was saying, can we do this off the record uh, through uh, uh, an app that allows us to delete what we're saying, which is deleting government ref- records, which is a crime. Yeah. It's, it's against the criminal code. But uh, to, to your point, she also said last week, I went to a meeting with cabinet. I didn't have a chance to speak to say that there was a plan for getting rid of the truck, trucker convoy. She didn't speak up at a cabinet meeting that was about whether we need the Emergencies Act on the issue of whether there was a plan by police to get to deal with the, the situation. It's incredible. I mean, I can't believe this admission from her because it's essentially the mission of incompetence. You don't go to a meeting like that. And she says, oh, well, I let the public safety minister know at the time uh, in advance, sorry, of the meeting. You still go to that meeting and you say, sorry, I have something very important to say. We have a plan. Police forces, it's not quite finalized, but it's getting there. To go to that meeting and not say that, and that's the problem for the government now, is that there was a plan that was, according to the RCMP commissioner, close to being finalized to deal with it without the Emergencies Act. Of course, the Emergencies Act helped because it gives them more powers, but that's not the standard to, to just say, oh, will it help? Yeah. Uh, it's whether they had the capacity to deal with it, and they did, and they were about to. They, the government's just, just made a snap decision and, and moved too early, and I think that's why, in the end, the inquiry commissioner will find that the government, at the time, was not justified in doing what they did. So do you think the Emergency Act was called due more for a dysfunction of leadership rather than a threat to national security? Yes. Yeah, I think that's very clear. Um some people in downtown Ottawa would say, well, our, our health or our safety was endangered, but it has to be seriously endangered. There were yeah. people being harassed by the truckers. Of course, the honking of horns is not something that anyone would want to live with for a long period of time. You can say that, oh, that hurt my mental health. But it has to be in serious endangerment. 
and also of the proportion that the uh, police authorities or other legal authorities can't deal with it. And they were about to. The cabinet should have been informed by the RCMP commissioner at that meeting that they had a plan. It was it was close to being finalized. It was just negligently incompetent for the RCMP commissioner Lucky to not say that at that meeting. To, to say that I didn't have a chance to speak, you stick up your hand and you say, we can't go. You're about to make a decision on the Emergencies Act. I have some key information for you. Uh, just because you send it to one cabinet minister staff person doesn't mean you don't speak up at that meeting. And uh, so the government can say, well, we didn't know that, but they still wouldn't meet the standard of serious endangerment to life, health, or safety, or, or a threat to national security. They're Called more for dysfunction. They're, they're going to say economic security, but the borders were cleared before they declared the Emergency yeah. Act. So clearly it wasn't needed to clear the borders. And that was the real economic threat, uh, blocking trade from the U.S. Jeff Conagher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, the Emergencies Act in its uh, inquiry, in its final week, and the Prime Minister at the end. Duff, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Take care. It'll be an interesting week. Have a good life. We will see you soon. Or maybe not. All right. Uh, you know, why uh, someone as intelligent as Donald Trump... Uh, sorry. Whoops. That was a... That was a that was a slip. Uh, why someone is uh, smart as, say, Elon Musk is, wants to hang around with someone like Donald Trump is beyond me, unless, of course, uh, one will make you money. Uh, and, and I had this conversation with Carmi uh, a long time ago that Twitter needs Trump. Uh, and it was pretty much irrelevant before Trump jumped on board. Now, uh, Elon Musk has reinstated Trump, but Trump goes, nope, not, not interested. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He's with us now. Carmi, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Thank you. Uh, this is, uh, if it wasn't so, well, let's leave it at that. Uh, no sense judging. Um, but Donald Trump, uh, from what I understand, he can't go back on Twitter because he started another thing with other investors. And one of those uh, conditions is you can't go on other social media. So is this all a moot point? Well, I think it is, although let's, you know, I'm pretty sure Donald Trump doesn't care about rules or clauses or contracts or anything. If he really wanted to go back onto Twitter, he would. The account is now back. Uh, it is no longer locked. It's not banned. It's ready and waiting for him. All he has to do is sign in and sweet. Um, but, you know, I think the thing here is, is that Donald Trump will still get the coverage regardless. He's figured out he no longer needs Twitter uh, in order to get his message out. He just posts it to his loser truth social platform. And let's 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 use the word loser. That's what it is. Nobody is on it. Just Donald Trump. And he rage posts whenever he wants. And what ends up happening is 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 both conventional media as well as members of you know with social media accounts will then go to Truth Social, pick up what he's saying and share it across all other platforms. So hmm. Donald Trump doesn't need to be on Twitter at this point. He's getting his message out. Everyone just watches his Truth Social account. And if he moved over to Twitter, he would essentially be making Elon Musk money. Whereas if he sticks right. to Truth Social, he's making himself money. And as we know, Donald Trump likes two things, attention and money. And this gives him both. We talked about this before, and, you know, I don't profess to be a social media guru like you or anything, but Twitter was on its way out before Donald Trump came on board. And then once he started tweeting every few minutes, it took off again Uh, Mm -hmm. without him. Where where are the numbers now? Well, interestingly, uh, Elon Musk is kind of like the new uh, Donald Trump. 
Because if you look at Elon Musk's account, basically he's he's posting a lot like Donald Trump used to, you know, very right. frequently, somewhat off base. He's he's not doesn't seem to be all quite there. I kind of never know what he's going to tweet next, and that's kind of how we felt when Donald Trump was active on the platform. Was it was kind of like watching a dumpster fire. You never quite knew where it was going to go next. And it was in, it was crazy. It was insane, but it was also entertaining. And so I think Elon Musk has assumed that role, and to a certain extent. Um, that's what people are following now. And if you if you believe what Elon Musk is saying, Twitter's user rate has never been higher. More people are using Twitter because everybody loves a good show. They're all pulling up popcorn and watching, uh, which it sounds great. You say, okay, good. Elon Musk figured it out. You know, we're, we're done. The problem here is, is that it doesn't matter if you have lots of people. If you can't convert those people into revenue, then what's the point of all this? Elon Musk he wants to be popular, but he also wants Twitter to be a viable business. And he's already scared off the vast majority of the advertising base and his revenue, 90 percent of which comes from advertising, has crashed to near zero. So he can have all the users in the world. Everybody on planet Earth can now sign up for Twitter. It's still not going to make a difference if advertisers are looking at going, I don't want my brand associated with that. How is he going to bring in revenue? That's the $64,000 question. So Trump doesn't need Twitter. Uh, he's got his own rodeo. So does Twitter need Trump? And now that uh, Donald Trump has has shut him down, is that a slap for, for Elon Musk? It certainly is. I mean, you know, Elon Musk telegraphed this months ago saying the first thing that he would do at the moment he takes over the platform is bring Donald Trump back. He felt that he had been wrongly banned. Um, and so, you know, and, and I think and at the time, Trump really didn't say anything. It was just kind of out there. Everyone just assumed, sure, he's going to come back. We know from from one you know piece of insanity to another, it sort of seems to be the way we're operating now. And Musk made good on his promise. He, of course, had to break another promise. He promised this content moderation um council that was going to look at the accounts that had been banned and nobody would be reinstated until this council had a chance to adjudicate clearly that council doesn't exist clearly those those that promise is never going to happen it's just elon musk deciding i'm going to throw up a poll and decide whatever i want and so you know you know he, he did it for donald trump obviously did it for Kanye West and Kanye West did take him up on it, uh, did it for Kathy Griffin, which I don't frankly think anyone cares about. But you know, here's <laughs> the thing. Here's the thing, Scott, is that he's arbitrarily deciding, yep, this one comes back, that one doesn't. And so why do we even bother having terms of use? Why are there rules for anyone when on a whim, Elon Musk can decide you're in and you're out? And which kind of defeats the whole purpose of having a platform where uh, there is uh, you know, sort of protection from the kinds of abuses that we've seen on Twitter to date. And so if he was hoping that Twitter would become a less abusive place, the way he's managing these unbannings is essentially guaranteeing that there's going to be massive amounts of abuse going forward. And as we've seen, uh, the, the, the rise in xenophobia, hate speech, misinformation, disinformation, it has exploded by hundreds, even thousands of percentage points since he came back and started behaving this way. So if you thought Twitter was going to be a safer place, you may want to find another place to hang your social media hat. You think Elon Musk would have known that Donald Trump would not bite on this, especially if he's got his own thing going on? Did, did he yeah. assume that wrong? I, I, I think he read the room wrong. But, you know, this isn't the first time Elon Musk has, has kind of missed it. He's He's an engineering genius. There's no question. He knows how to surround himself with the right kinds of engineers who can figure out how to land rockets on barges in the middle of the ocean. 
who can figure out how to create an electric car that doesn't look like a golf cart that people actually want to buy and pay a lot of money for. So he's got the engineering chops, or at least he knows how to build engineering teams, but it's the emotional intelligence. He doesn't seem to read people very well, and he doesn't really understand that behaviors have consequences. And so in terms of trying to understand what Donald Trump is going to do, Elon Musk tried to figure him out. Let's face it. Uh, people less qualified than Elon Musk have tried and failed to do exactly that. So I'm not surprised here that Donald Trump isn't following Elon Musk's script. He'll follow Donald Trump's script as he always has. It's probably not going to change anytime soon. So what does Elon Musk do now that his prize first uh, ring circus show is is out? Does he look for another Donald Trump to fill the void? I feel like that Elvis movie and Colonel Tom looking for an act. <laughs> I think what he needs to do is stop chasing popularity. Stop stop hamming up for attention because it isn't about attention. It's about business. It's about creating sustainable revenue. It's about building a subscription model, Twitter Blue, that doesn't allow all of the abusive crazies back on the platform. That doesn't turn it into an abusive hellscape. And, and that's kind of where where he's going here so he's got to figure out how to bring the rhetoric down how to stop appeasing those who would spread hatred and abuse uh, and get those advertisers back and at the same time uh, as that advertising revenue is returned hopefully uh, then he's got to figure out a subscription-based model that doesn't invite even more abuse because that's what happened when he rolled it out the first time and frankly he needs to learn how to move a little bit more slowly he's been throwing things at the wall threatening his employees in you know move this code in here's the deadline if i don't like what you what you give me you're fired it's not the way to motivate engineers uh and as we've seen so far he's lost most of his staff he's losing even more today the firings and resignations will continue and if he wants this company to be innovate he's going to need experts to do that for him and he's really not doing a whole lot on the human resources front everyone's leaving that's not going to allow him to introduce all of these features and get that revenue flowing again Carmen Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, uh, Elon Trump, and, or sorry, Elon Musk and Donald Trump. <laughs> Can they dance together just or perhaps marry each other like I just suggested? Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Coming up next after the 6 o'clock news, the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. How are you? Did you have a good week? Yeah, it was a great week, but I'm paying for it now, man. Uh, I've got like I can't hear out of my ear. My throat's sore. Uh, well, you if, know. You, if you could hear anywhere else, that would be even more concerning. <laughs> That's a good point. Thank you for breaking that down. I don't know if down. you need to qualify. I can't hear out of my ear. I mean, I can't That's hear right. out of my shoulder either, but that's, uh, you know, that's to be expected. I'm barely keeping the balls in the air as it is, and here you are just antagonizing me and peppering me with this. I, you know, I, 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 I don't know what to say. Um, your thoughts on Grey Cup 2022. Uh, exciting game right to the very end. It was a nail-biter in the sense. Uh, of course, Hamilton wasn't in it, so really, who cares? But your thoughts on what we saw yesterday? No, th- this was this was uh, this was good. The, the last two years, I mean, there was a time when the Grey Cup was always way better than the Super Bowl. The Super yep. Bowl was just not very exciting usually, and the Grey Cup always was. And then the balance kind of shifted, and then in the last few years, it's coming back where the Grey yeah. Cup is now once again 
worth watching. And, you know, it's always been worth watching because it's kind of a Canadian tradition. And, sure. But, but nonetheless, um, fantastic game, head-scratching halftime show, but that's neither here nor there. I didn't understand what the heck they were doing. It was like they pulled names out of a drum and said, okay, you will do it with you. And um, But <laughs> the game itself was amazing. And the ending – and, Scott, here's the thing. the in In so many sporting events – we don't really care how the game starts. If the last three minutes of that game hmm. had been the first three minutes and then the rest of the game had been boring, we would have said, oh, that was a boring game. As yeah. long as you put the la- the exciting part at the end, which this was absolutely was, everyone goes, oh, instant classic. And it was. It was, it was a great, exciting game. I don't think we're supposed to understand the halftime show anymore. Just saying. Our Kells no? last year were terrific. Yeah, but that's because they're from Hamilton. Okay, and they're a great band, too. But yeah, I digress. <laughs> the, and, and, you know, there's been other ones. I mean, Shania Twain, I'm not a big country fan, but Shania Twain yeah. a few years ago in Ottawa was amazing. And, you know, there have been others. I just, this one was like, okay, uh, uh, first, maybe it's because I don't f- listen to country music. But um, I, I have seen Florida Georgia Line in concert when they were at the Canadian Open a few years ago. Sure. Uh, this was only half of them. So, you know, anyway, the whole thing, it was just like, okay, if, if you just tuned in for the halftime show, you have no idea why we're talking about this being a great game because that was a bizarre, horrible halftime show. But the game was great. All right. So uh, just a little earlier, talking to Dave Foxcroft, who, of course, was yes. the uh, head, head officiator there and in what the game was like, his all of a sudden attention is day one today, Hamilton coming up next year. Uh, what do we have to do to be in our own Grey Cup? Oh, get better, <laughs> win, <laughs> win some games. That's that's the level of obviousness that goes with I can't hear out of my ear. Um, yes. Yeah, that, that is, uh, yeah, they, I mean, Hamilton has to be a much better team. I mean, look, they were a really good team for the two previous years. They got to the Grey Cup the two previous years. And, you know, if if you don't get to the Grey Cup this year, as in yesterday, but you figure it out and get back in time for your own Grey Cup next year, this year is completely forgotten about nobody cares. There is, though, a huge, and we saw it last year and we saw it in other Grey Cups where the home team was at it. There is a huge benefit to having the home team involved in the game. It is, yeah. it is a, it, I mean, look, Hamilton wants to be in there no matter what. The Ticats want to be in the Grey Cup every year. There's no, that's not the point. But when you're hosting, you want to be in the Grey Cup. It just changes the dynamic of the week entirely. So we'll see. They've got the rights to, while you were away, they traded for the rights to Bo Levi Mitchell, the Calgary quarterback, mm-hmm. who's now a free agent. Whether they can sign him, we'll see. But, th- th- I mean, that's a position where you have to look hard right off the bat and say, was it good enough this year? No. Is Dane Evans good enough that he might next year rebound? Maybe. Are you willing to take a risk on that when you have the Grey Cup? That's the question. So that's where it starts right there. Are we good enough at quarterback? And after that, let's see where the rest of the team falls. All right, so let's move to the Buffalo Bills. Mm. Uh, my son and I were lucky enough a few years ago to the big uh, to go to the big snowball game where we left oh, here. There's nothing. Oh yeah, and then you couldn't see the other side of the stadium awesome. by uh, the time and guys awesome. with leaf blowers. It was pretty cool. But this one takes the cake. My brother-in-law, who's totally into it, uh, him and his buddy took off to Cleveland. That would be, or sorry, to Detroit to see them play Cleveland. That would be fascinating. Uh, talking about your home field advantage and such with such a mixture of fans in the crowd. 
I heard, I was on social media and stuff, and I saw all kinds of NFL fans from around the league just shredding the Bills for being wusses and not playing in a little snow. You know, you, you, were, little all, snow. you were all upset because it was hot in Miami, and you said, wait till Miami has to come to play in the snow, and then the snow comes and you guys bail out. There was, there was only, I think they said on the broadcast, there were only four players on the Bills who would not have been under their heads in the snow. Yeah, exactly. There, there was, at that stadium which turned out to be kind of the centerpiece of the snow, like the hardest hit area. It was yeah. six foot six inches of snow. I yeah. mean, it, it was, even if you could have cleared the field, which undoubtedly they could have, where would you have put it? And where would all that yeah. snow in the stands, where would you the have stands, shoveled it to? Exactly. You could, it, I mean, you couldn't, it's not that they couldn't play. They could have played the game there. They couldn't have got anybody to the game. I don't care how hardy the tailgaters are for Bill's Mafia. It's really hard to drive your car through five feet of snow. It'd be very cool, though, to go to the top deck and see if you could toboggan all the way down. <laughs> through the game. Because everything was covered. At the Little League World Series that in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, they have the hill, and the kids get on cardboard boxes and slide down. You could have done that all through the Bills game, just people tobogganing and hopefully yeah. not landing on the field in the middle <laughs> of a play. Stop before they get there. All right, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. No problem. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we greatly appreciate it. Thanks to Diane and Dave in the newsroom, uh, Erskine uh, for booking the guests, and Weber for uh, running the board. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Danny wrote in to say, Scott, welcome back. I thought you were on strike. Like everybody else. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. <laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.